Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Jeffrey Cass to our show. Dr. Cass is the Dean of the College of Arts and Humanities at Arkansas Tech University in Russellville, Arkansas. Hey, Jeff, I'm happy to have you on the show today. Thank you. Glad to be here. So can you tell me about Arkansas Tech University and why students select both the university and also your college? Well, I think that that one of the reasons we have such a loyal uh, alumni and a a loyal fan base uh, in Russellville and and the River Valley region uh, as well as the state and even the nation with certain programs. I think it's because we are so teacher driven. We, we care so much about teaching. Um, the students are always saying things like, we go the extra mile, we'll meet with students on Saturdays. You know, I mean, all kinds of, of uh, support for student success. Um, and I think that's true across the, the colleges and uh, in particular, arts and humanities. Uh, we just had an alumni event, in fact, for music, which is one of our uh, premier programs, really, at the university, but within the college. And uh, I had set up a, um, an alumni uh, kind of a showcase in the atrium so they could look at old alumni artifacts and pictures and things. And they just loved it. I mean, you know, they just was, you know, recalling what they had done when they were uh, music students here at Arkansas Tech. We've had some pretty famous uh, uh, band directors here, Gene Witherspoon, for example, who actually uh, Bill Clinton knew. Uh, He actually, because, you know, Bill's from Arkansas. And in fact, uh, when we took the, um, which is one of the neatest things, we took the the symphonic uh, wind ensemble, the, the, the sort of highest level band, uh, to Carnegie Hall this summer, uh, President Clinton kind of uh, recorded a uh, message for us. We wanted him to do one of the, the reading pieces within the program, but as you know, he had some health issues uh, this year, and so he wasn't able to do that, but his uh, um, uh, person at the Clinton Foundation in Little Rock actually read it oh. for us, Stephanie Strait. She was great. Oh, that's so, good. Yeah, I mean, that. so I think we're just a very sort of student-focused, teacher-driven kind of place. It doesn't mean we don't have a lot of good researchers, too. Right. It's just, we just have a kind of, you know, this is my fifth institution, and this one really is, is student-focused, I think, <laughs> in, in, in ways that I have not seen before. And uh, it's really re- rather refreshing. So it sounds like you've really landed at a, a, a wonderful institution to be part of. I think so. I mean, I've enjoyed it, uh, even though we have gone through lots of things. I got here in uh, January of uh, 2020, and um, I think the pandemic started like a month after I got here. So I literally had to kind of learn how to be dean offline, as it were, uh, which is a is, you know weird for me because I tend to be a very social kind of person. I walk around a lot. I want to see what's happening in people's spaces as well as the facilities because you'd be amazed at how many things you find out about facilities by walking around. Right. 
and to me, that's important because people's environment uh, is key to success of faculty and students. But I wasn't doing that. I was trying to keep track online and, and it's difficult. It was a new way of doing things. And yet, you know, even the music faculty figured out how to do lessons online. Art faculty had figured out how to, to review portfolios. And, and I mean, everyone kind of pitched in to make it work and it happened fast. So it wasn't like we had a whole lot of time to train everybody. And um, so there were some glitches, but I think overall um, we provided an equivalent experience. And then uh, we also had accreditation in the fall, the semester after all of that. Uh, we've gone through restructuring, uh, you know, uh, both uh, financial restructuring to some extent for a five-year model and plan, as well as uh, bureaucratic restructuring, meaning the, the composition of the colleges. So we're going from six colleges to four. Oh. Uh, arts and humanities is actually uh, relatively untouched. We're pretty much the same as we were. Um, and I think that we, we think that the new college structure will provide more kinds of interaction among departments, as they say in these days, synergies among programs and so forth. And um, so I think, uh, you know, it's been, a, it's been busy, 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 but uh, uh, nonetheless, very rewarding. And, and uh, I think that's principally because of the students and because of my faculty colleagues who are just really amazing. Well, what's new at your college? Well, we have uh, uh, some new, we have uh, one new program that's coming up. Uh, we're actually changing communication and journalism to communication and media studies, uh, in part as recognition of what's happening to, well, journalism, and I'm going to put that in quotation marks, uh, what's happening to it as a discipline where it's digitized, multi-relational, different kinds of writing, uh, and actually, it's interesting, you know, mentioned the podcast, we, we're, do, we're doing more even things like radio theater. Um, we're doing, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting throwback, yeah. no, but uh, nonetheless, it's works and, and how we felt we should have a new degree about social influencing with the media. So, so it's social, social media influencing. So that's going to be, that's being discussed now. We're trying to get some new uh, certificate programs. The university wants to have a lot more certificate programs that could be done either as kind of add-ons to degrees or independent kinds of revenue streams where you provide training or you provide access to training uh, for different groups, businesses, or other groups that want that. It's a little harder for arts and humanities because, you know, you can't, it, it, it's, it's not modular in the same way that some other things are. So I can't just say, if you could take five weeks of oboe, you'll be Benny Youngman or something, or clarinet, or you know, it's not gonna work, you know? And so, um, but we're trying to do some new certificates where we take our, our minors, turn them into certificates so that the certificate becomes part of their um, uh, transcript. Um, we're also, and it'd be more, you know, the 18 hour minors just isn't very popular these days. So we're trying to turn them into, into minors. And then we're looking at some other things uh, in other areas for, um, um, cert certification or badging, you know, the micro credentialing right. that is becoming popular. Yeah, that's, that is really becoming popular, isn't it? I've watched so many colleges over the last year really do things that we never thought they would ever do after all these years. 
No, uh, but it's still kind of exciting. I mean, I have several colleagues who are telling me they're retiring. They don't want to do it anymore. It's, it's just too, it's different. The students are, different, you know, but to me, it's kind of exciting. I mean, it's just yeah. a different way of approaching our, our business and our profession. And, and uh, it's a different way of meeting the needs of students because uh, in the end, we're educators and uh, whether it's the traditional face-to-face format or some other format. I mean, we have to provide education to these people so that they can move on with their lives, have lifelong learning as well as uh, employment. So yeah. it's still kind of exciting. And, and we have gotten support from the state. I mean, we have to you know give some shout outs to people who've supported us. Um, for example, our, our representative uh, Womack has given us, uh, has some, uh, uh, special project so with, with nursing gave us over seven uh, six hundred eighty thousand or so We're trying to get a special project going with uh, our congressman on agriculture this year and I, I helped write some of that stuff up um, and then we've gotten support from the community uh, so many ways the governor has given us money for our Arkansas Technical Institute mm. um, and uh, you know we're there's there's a program where he gave us money for X um, uh, for former prisoners who uh, want employment. And it's, so it's, it's, a, it's a transitional kind of program. So, you know, we have a lot of stuff going on in all sorts of areas. And I think we've had, you know, support uh, from our trustees and from our uh, le- uh, legislators because they understand that um, uh, all of these things are important. But, you know, we've also had a lot of support for arts and humanities, particularly in music, communications, um, and art. I mean, the, we really have, and, and the president has been very supportive as well. Yeah. Well, I know you've held uh, other administrative positions over the years. So can you talk about the path that led you to become the dean there at Arkansas Tech? Well, let's see. Um, well, I had spent um, uh, a good portion of my career at Texas A&M International University, uh, in Laredo. And for those of you who, re- who remember the streets of Laredo, that song, it really is uh, Laredo. I mean, it's there, it's real. And I spent uh, nearly 19 years, 20 years, almost 20 years on the border. Um, and it was uh, very rewarding. And it was, of course, the beginning of my career. I spent three years at the community college. And then uh, I spent 16 at, uh, in uh, Tamiu. And we got to build a brand new campus. It's one of the only oh, new wow. campuses in the country from nothing. I mean, there were literally jackrabbits. There wasn't a road. And now there's a huge sort of highway past a university that has 8,000. I, when I, they hired me, we had 1,100. And um, um, 20 buildings. And I mean, it's just an amazing kind of place. Uh, and uh, But... You know, I'd spent a lot of time there and I wanted to become a dean. I'd been associate provost for a few years for the provost. And I thought if I ever want to become provost, I need to be a dean. So I went to Louisiana and I was dean for five years at uh, the University of Louisiana at Monroe. And then I went to University of Houston, Victoria to be provost. And um, I have to say that was more of a misery than being Mm. dean. Uh, It was... It was really hard. And um, without going to any, any details, just eventually I went back to faculty for a few years. And um, actually, I'm glad I did that because uh, I had forgotten because it had been so many years. 
I, I had forgotten what it meant to be a full-time faculty member. And I gotta say, it's freaking hard. Uh, I had forgot, I mean, it was like, holy moly, this is hard. No wonder they were yakking at me about online or this or whatever they were yakking at me about. And I'm going, okay, now I get it. And uh, I was also became, after what was I became faculty Senate president. Um, and so I saw that other side and so when I decided to go for another job, I kind of took all of that with me. And it was uh, pretty much all about um, a little more about compassion, a little bit more about kindness and understanding, even though you have to make firm decisions and you have to you know, sometimes say no, uh, nonetheless, it was about listening and doing things in a more impactful way than I think I had previously. And it was because I went, had gone back to faculty and all of a sudden I could see both sides in such a way that uh, I could see what faculty understood and, and, and why we didn't always understand them. And uh, as a result, um, I, I think that that sort of broad experience, because, you know, when I started at TAMIU, I was you know, I always say this kind of in a jokey way, but uh, I was the enfant terrible. I was, you know, you know, young and you know, go-getter. And now I'm the ominance grise. Uh, I'm the, the, the old guy. <laughs> it's just so funny. And you, it doesn't seem like that long ago, but, you yeah. know, oh, yes, it is. And, um, but, you know, it, it's been a wonderful journey. And I think part of it was that, uh, particularly now as, as Dean and as sort of an elder statesman, as it were, uh, it, it really um, has been enjoyable working with the faculty and, and uh, helping them. And, and, you know, there's lots of stuff. I mean, you know, from things I never thought I'd be thinking about over much like facilities. Oh my goodness. I've been, you know, trying to understand HVAC. In fact, I got to tell you, if I know what I know two years, two years ago, I would have gotten a certificate in HVAC and that would have been my retirement plan. I'm not kidding. It's like, gee whiz, there's a lot of HVAC stuff. <laughs> well, how has your leadership style changed over all these years then? Well, I think at this point, I have a pretty light touch. What I mean by that is I try to kind of not be like the leader who says, this is the way it is this is what you're going to do. Um, you know, I'm going to, this is, I'm telling you, now you're going to do it. You know, they, it just doesn't work. And I think I've developed a fairly light touch. And well, the way I do that is, uh, you know, if faculty say, well, there's this problem. Okay, there's a problem. How do you want me to help you with it? What do you want me to do? How do you want to solve it? You know, I, I try to, because that's what shared governance is. I mean, it can't all be on me. I mean, especially since I, I don't know every single detail of every program, nor is that my job. It's their job to take control of their own programs. And, and so I've learned to be a little lighter. And the way I've done that, by the way, ultimately, if I had to write a book about it, I would entitle my book, It Doesn't Matter If You're Right. Because many leaders, when they start, they have this idea, and I did at one time. Well, if I could just show the faculty how right I am, <laughs> then they're going to go, oh, gosh, why didn't we see this before? 
And what I realized is you begin get older, you become more humble, less, less egoistic. What you realize is you got a whole bunch of smart people around you. You don't know everything. And even if you think you're right, you're probably not right, or at least not as right as you think you are. So maybe you should just listen for a while. And so I've kind of like tried to, I guess, back off being the egomaniac, right, or the center of attention and just kind of let the faculty take over their programs, let the students do what they need to do and just support, but not like demand or enforce or you know issue dicta or anything like that you know i I need for you to write that book because i need to send that to a few people (laughs) (laughs) because i agree and of course i i do agree also age helps with that a little bit too but yeah yeah well good um what's been your proudest moment so far at arkansas tech i would have to say one of the things i and i mentioned it uh sort of sideways uh, earlier was when we took the band to the Carnegie Hall, to Carnegie Hall uh, this summer, it was extraordinary to hear our students play in that famous venue. And not just our students, we had two bands, our high school Arkansas bands there. And it was amazing. I mean, they did such a wonderful job. And they were on the Carnegie Hall menu for the year you know i mean it was it was amazing and they did such a good job they're so talented um these musicians and and the thing is i guess you know sort of an ancillary of that is we have we have produced so many music educators uh in this state many of them are band directors music teachers and um so we've had an impact far beyond just a concert right i mean it's it's We've impacted generations of, of people who have, have t- lived music, taught music, appreciated music. It's so interesting how many people have come to me and said, you know, I took music when I was at Arkansas Tech 30 years ago, whatever. In fact, we were on the plane going to Carnegie, right? And somehow the pilot got wind of who we were, right? And he came out and said, you know, the best thing I learned in terms of how, how to be a pilot was playing in a band. It was like, what? <laughs> and it was apparently it's because it had to do with the teamwork, getting the drill right, um, relying on each other, not you know being the big ego in the cockpit, as it were. Everyone had to play, had a role to play. And he learned how to do that because of the band. He was at, uh, I believe, Georgia. And it was interesting how, I mean, I've never had a pilot do that, you know, come out and he was giving us all this, this, uh, you know, know, rah, rah and good for you. And he just didn't expect that just off the cuff, but, you know, music has such an effect on people. And I think that that was really a a very problem. (laughs) What a great story. (laughs) Um, What's some of the biggest lessons you've learned so far as an academic leader? I know you've talked about your, uh, lightening up, I guess I'll just put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I guess what I would say is, um, you know, things are going to, um, there are always problems. It always seems like the center of the universe. And um, I think one of the things I've learned is, first of all, you also have to take care of yourself. Sometimes I forget that. And, um, you know, you, 
you cannot let it get to you've got to go to the gym or you've got to have a good meal or take a day off and you you need self-care the when i talk about that i really believe that i think a lot of people get so wrapped up in a job indeed we have to but there are moments when you just have to back off and say you know i need to take a day i'll see you two days from now nothing bad's going to happen it'll still be there when you get back um but we have a have a way of having it just sort of eat up the entire life and you know i i'd like to live a few more years and and i think that the best way to do that is to try to sort of take care of myself i think that also helps my faculty because i don't think they want me to you know keel over either the other thing uh, i would say is you've got to learn somehow and it's not easy and i still struggle with this it's not about you don't, you know, I mean, don't let your ego to take over everything. You don't need the credit. You, you made it, okay? You're an academic leader. You don't need all the credit. Give it to somebody else. Good point. I always give it to the faculty. I give it to the department heads. I give it to the pro. I give it to the president because she needs, she needs the credit so that she can raise some money for us. I mean, if anyone needs credit, it's the president. The, the vice president, I, I don't need the credit. You need to kind of offload all of that. I know it's nice to be told, thank you. It is. It's nice when people express gratitude, but it isn't necessary because I would do the same thing regardless. What other qualities do you think makes a good dean? Well, I think one of the most important things is you have to convince your faculty you're interested in them, you know, that, that you care. And, and what I mean by that is I go to the concerts, I go to the lectures, um, I go to their offices. I don't make them come into mine always. They do, they come into my office, of course, but I'll go to their office. So what's going on? Are you okay? What are you doing? You know, um, I think they need to know that you care about them, that you're an advocate for them. Um, and um, if you're just counting the beans, well, you may have gotten the financial side okay, um, but the human side, which is a huge part of success in any organization, uh, will not have been taken care of as effectively. Um, so that even if you have wonderful ideas, if they just don't like your style, um, they're, they're not gonna do it. And uh, so I think that the human side is what really most affects success. They need to know that you care. But then you, you need to get a few wins too. I mean, you know, go to the vice president and say, look, I mean, this program has not been attended to for a while. It really needs this piece of equipment or it really needs this, this uh, faculty member. The, you know, and you, you have to frame it, uh, a kiln for art. Um, I learned one thing and it's like administration always gets um, a little weirded out about safety. So I framed it in terms of safety. Well, you don't want the kiln to collapse on the student's hands, do you? So, and, and you know, and no, we really don't. So, <laughs> and, and I think that it's, you have to learn how to frame that only, but you have to know the people you have to know, you have to do all of these connections across campus to other areas of the institution. Um, and you, you, you know, you have to support your team and your boss. If the boss finally says no, then you're going to have to figure out a way to make it palatable and say no. What do you think are the major challenges and opportunities for universities in the next five to 10 years? 
Well, challenges are clear, and that is higher ed is just different now. Um, the traditional student market is shrinking a bit. Uh, this is obviously of concern to a place like Arkansas Tech because if our fan base, our alumni base uh, is loyal, but it's kind of a shrinking base that even if you keep more of them, you're not gonna maintain your enrollment, you're not gonna grow. So you're gonna have to figure out how to draw other kinds of students into the mix, whether they're adult market students through online programming um, or uh, working students who want additional training such as through a badge or some kind of micro-credential or um, uh, other kinds of students who may want traditional education, but you have to go out and get them, uh, particularly African-American students, Latino students um, who are first generation, Pell Grant students. And you're gonna have to figure out ways not only of getting them, but keeping them. And I think that that retention uh, is becoming even more an issue than it was. Um, you can't just say, well, you've got to meet my bar. And if you don't get over the bar, then say la vie. Um, I just don't think that works. And so that's why, you know, when we're hiring, we look for people who will go the extra mile, as I said at the beginning, who will help these students not lower the bar, get over the bar, you know, help them. But the ways in which we've traditionally helped students or have helped students maybe in the last 20 years or so, maybe we need to rethink that a little bit because you may need some online support systems. You may need slightly different support systems from niche market to niche market. So I think it's gonna, you know, that our higher ed has changed because it's, it's being divided into different markets. You know, some academic leaders believe that students lost ground academically during this pandemic. So wh what do you think can be done to resolve that issue? Or is there, or is there anything that can be done? Well, I mean, I don't think it's just uh, students. I mean, I think uh, some job candidates, um, interestingly enough, when it started through the pandemic, had not really had face-to-face -face, um, experience. Many of them had only taught online. And so they come to campus on an interview and, you know, they were terrific online, web, you know, online interview, whatever. And then the faculty would say, but they were so stiff in class. I said, did they actually have any experience? Had they that experience before? Whereas they might've been before, maybe stiff online because they didn't know how to do that. Now it's flipped because of the way in which the pandemic overturned everything. I don't think it's just the faculty and, and or just the students. I think, that, um, I think that the students will, many of them, and if they're going to succeed, will simply have to learn and we're gonna have to support them. We have to figure out exactly what they didn't get I suspect what they didn't get is certain kinds of socialization and expectation for learning that takes place in, in a classroom setting, a face-to-face -face setting that they don't necessarily get. And they can't just tune it out. You know, it's like, you, you've seen it on me, Zoom and so forth. You know, all of a sudden the picture clicks off, you know, that person isn't listening to what you're saying. Um, or, you know, they're going, they're going click, 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 click. I remember <laughs> talking to one person who was kind of a recruiter um, and she, they had contacted me, right, for some position. And all I could hear was, 
you know, they'd ask me a question. I started answering. All I could hear was clack, 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 clack. They were writing stuff, uh, you know, they weren't even listening to what I was saying. And so I think yeah. that it's a matter of re-socializing students to make them understand that when they do face-to-face stuff, this isn't just, you know, something we want because we're old. Uh, it's because if you want to get good positions, you have to have some socialization, some ability to interact with people. And I think we're going to have to make that assumption. We're going to have to maybe help uh, some of the younger uh, teachers until, you know, it goes kind of reaches a new uh, normal where people are sort of able to um, do it in all the modalities, which is one reason why we're talking high flex right now. In other words, faculty having to basically teach in all kinds of modalities. And uh, that's going to be a lot of work and very difficult, but it also is a retention thing where we might be able to retain more students because they can dip in and out of the class the way they, their schedule dictates. Yeah, you know, uh, there's a lot of discussion also going on with how the physical campus is probably going to change over the next few years. And HyFlex is, you know, one, one of those examples. So where do you think that's all going to go? Well, I, I think that what's going to eventually happen to uh, face-to-face campuses is <clears throat> if a significant portion of their enrollment is no longer present, then they're going to have to think about how much physicality do they really need. Uh, campuses that have a large physical plant are paying a lot of money um, for facilities that they're maybe underusing or, or maybe they don't need as much of. So if you had, let's say, 5,000 students in the dorms and now you've got 3,000, maybe it's time to ask the question whether you need all those buildings now. Yeah. Or is there some other way of using them? So for example, uh, Arkansas Tech in the summer has um, band camps where we try to both junior high, senior high, they become uh, sort of feeders uh, to some extent in our programs, music programs. We also have something called Governor's School, which is a statewide program. And Governor's School um, is uh, basically a, a program that teaches them how to think. And, and it was uh, designed many years ago. Originally, it was at Hendrix. And uh, then we put in a bid for it. And uh, it's connected to you know all kinds of learning, but particularly political science and thinking about things, all kinds of things happen at the governor's school. Well, I mean, you know, when you talk about those kinds of, of things, do you, how much physicality do you need? Now we bring them in. And so now we're using some of the buildings in the summer and getting some money for it. So all of a sudden, maybe it has, you know, a kind of uh, positive value. But in some cases, if all the dorms are, are just not being used or they're underused, maybe we don't pay for them anymore, you know, because I don't know if we're going to have the same robust face-to-face enrollments uh, going forward that maybe we had five to 10 years ago. And I don't think we're alone. I mean, I think that there are a lot of campuses are worrying about keeping up their physical plant because there's lots of deferred maintenance and so forth. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, So here's a dream question if you had extra budget money right now with no strings attached how would you how would you spend it <laughs> that's easy i need a new music building um <laughs> and uh and 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 the thing is you know one sometimes people forget about music you know people that they, they'll build multi-purpose auditoria 
music doesn't really function as well in certain kinds of spaces as another. You want a space that has bouncier kinds of acoustics, right? And, uh, you know, you go into a space and listen to a concert and it's like they put carpet all on the floor. It's like, do you know anything about acoustics? That's not going to bounce. It's going to go right into the carpet. So um, I need a, but I need a larger music space and I need a space for the marching band where perhaps we just open the, like a big door and they can come in during the rain and, and uh, march inside. Um, we, we, there's just, I, it would be very useful to us to have that. The building we're in right now is, is um, getting up there and it's time for a, uh, it really would be helpful if we had a new music space, but that's a, that's an expensive proposition. And uh, we know it is, um, but uh, that if you, since you said, what's my dream, uh, I would say that would be it. Oh, hopefully you'll have some donors listening today. <laughs> be able to help you out. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> um, do you have any favorite books on leadership that you would recommend to other academic leaders? Yeah. I mean, the, I, I had a couple that I, I pulled out. Um, one of them I read that I thought was very interesting uh, for leaders. The book is well, maybe a little old now, about eight or nine years but it's called Presidencies Derailed. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting about it, this was uh, one of the former presidents who led that initiative, Trachtenberg, who was the lead author. Um, one of the things that's interesting about uh, that book is it shows how even with the best of intentions, even with the best of backgrounds, even with a great deal of knowledge on how to run an institution, uh, presidencies can fail, but it, I think it, the larger point was that leadership can fail if the situation is not under, well understood or if you don't understand how to address the different systems that surround your area or surround the institution, um, and that would include the politics. And so it was an interesting book how uh, presidencies can be derailed, but really I would say leadership, how leadership can be derailed um, if it's either not well understood or if the situation is just, you know, untenable, which can happen. Um, another book that I'm starting to read uh, by William McMillan is From Cap Campus to Capital. And this is about how um, the campus interacts with uh, govern uh, uh, government bodies. Um, you know, most, most places now have a kind of a government liaison or someone to help you uh, with uh, government, usually state government, but sometimes federal, uh, both. And this helps you sort of understand the way things are in terms of funding for that session, helps you understand what's kind of important to the particular uh, leaders that are in the government. Many of them, you know, are fine people, but they may not understand how higher ed works. You have to work to help them understand that. And usually if you have a good liaison, they're able to do that. We, we do have a wonderful liaison and she's very good at explaining that. In fact, this is a book that she recommended. And so I'm taking a look at that because I think that when we think about funding for higher education, you know, the old joke is that uh, state institutions used to be state funded and now they're just state located. And, um, you know, uh, I think that we, they just don't have enough money. And so we have to figure out other ways of trying to get funds, whether it's through grants, whether it's through uh, other kinds of legislation, donors and so forth. 
Um, but this is one way to get some of those funds that you're going to need for projects that cannot be funded through E&J or state money. And I think that's just something that's going to happen. Finally, uh, this book that's becoming very popular, uh, Arthur Levine and Scott Van Pelt's book, The Great Upheaval, that I'm taking a look at as well. I, I, you know, this genre of book for higher education was what I would call, um, oh, I don't know, disaster porn uh, or something, you know, <laughs> the higher education is going to sink into the ocean, uh, you know, and it's like, yeah. But I will say this, um, they do have some ideas about how it's shifting in terms of what I, we've been talking about earlier that I think is probably accurate. Now, it's not like that guy at Harvard who died, in, it was a Christensen, who said, higher education is, you know, institutions are closed by the thousand. Didn't happen, all right? Because he thought it would happen in a completely different way. He didn't realize it was going to be a pandemic that all of a sudden altered the landscape. So the landscape's been altered, and I think that there is a kind of um, change that is taking place. Upheaval, maybe a little rhetorically uh, uh, hyperbolic, but still, uh, I think it's changing enough where I think the book sort of moves in a direction of, uh, you know, this could happen. We'd have to prepare for it, that kind of thing. Mm. Well, that's good. That's a, that's a that's a nice note to end our our episode on today. Okay. <laughs> I had a lot of fun talking to you. This was a great conversation. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.